Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to a Pain Talk podcast. Today, we're going to do another case. I find these cases are really interesting, and they pull in all kinds of information and challenges that we'll see in clinical practice. So try and base these cases on things that we would see every day and maybe how we can approach this very complex um, area of healthcare that we provide. So we're going to talk about Jen, who's a 32-year-old female. She's had a 10-year history of chronic diffuse myalgias and arthralgias. She's had foggy thinking and significant fatigue in her life. She presents to the emergency department. So I'm going to do this in the emergency department, although we'll probably try and bring in an aspect of what we would do in clinical practice uh, if you're in a primary care practice. So she's had a two-month history of continuous chest pressure and a sense of not being able to take a deep breath. So this has been really overwhelming for her. She's had numerous investigations for these symptoms, including both cardiac, respiratory, inflammatory serology, and all of these have been inconclusive, have not shown us anything dangerous or bad that may be contributing to this, although these symptoms are very distressing and very real for Jen. She's also had prior outpatient investigations for her chronic symptoms of total body pain that have also been inconclusive. She has been told that the cause of her um, ongoing pain is arthritis, although the arthritis is not an inflammatory arthritis, more in keeping with our aging process, and that she would just need to learn to live with it. So this has been really overwhelming for Jen. Since COVID has happened, this has got even more difficult for her. Uh, She's developed some tools and strategies that she's been using in the community up to that point, and she hasn't been able to access those. So she's come to the emergency room seeking a second opinion from you as the healthcare provider. You can imagine how overwhelming this can feel, uh, especially if you're working in an emergency department that tends to be busy. Although COVID has kind of restructured everything, it's not as intense as it was, although it's starting to pick up now as we get back to normal. But you're just wondering, like, where do I start with this very complex situation, in particular, especially when you have someone sitting in front of you who is clearly suffering. So this can feel very overwhelming. So what I want to do is take you through what I do, how I approach this um, this very challenging uh, situation, and hopefully give you a framework that can leave you and the patient with a plan in a reasonable period of time, knowing that uh, our work in the emergency department Uh, can be limited. And if your department is like mine, we are actually a single coverage department, meaning there's only one emergency doctor. So uh, sometimes you can get pulled away, but generally more the rule is that you do have that time to sit with the patient. So hopefully what we can do is give you uh, an approach. So the first thing I always do, and I'm sure most of us do, uh, when we're seeing a new patient, because we're not going to know the background, this is the value of a family practitioner or a nurse practitioner that's providing primary care is they generally know the patient. But it is a really good process. I did do general practice for a while. And I know that uh, sometimes when you're seeing on your your patient list, a patient that's coming in with this kind of uh, overwhelming type of symptoms, it can pause you and you think, how can I structure that day? It is important to give them the appointment that is most likely the last one. So in case you do need more time, because they do need to have you present and to be able to provide that interaction, it is always good just to review their medical record and review their investigations just to be sure that you're on top of all of that prior to seeing them. 
So prior to seeing them in the emergency room, what I do very quickly is scan their medical record, looking for any consultations. And I can do this online, which is wonderful. So I quickly read the notes of other specialists or other individuals that have uh, had the opportunity to review this patient. And I keep a really open mind and I'm really curious. So I want to see what sort of information has been brought out. The other thing that I often do is just look at the visits prior to going into the medical record. I just look at the number of visits that the patient has had, especially in the last three months. And why that's important is that when you start to see someone frequently coming to the emergency room, that is actually a red flag. That tells us that that patient is at risk. Um, so they're at risk of more morbidity, mortality, more complications. So you want to make sure that you're taking that time to really fully review the patient, uh, getting them the care that they need, connecting them to the resources that they need. And emergency departments can be very good for that. We often think of ourselves as providing only acute care. But in fact, we have a really good snapshot of our community and we can actually get the patient to the care that they need in the shortest period of time, depending on the resources that you have. So our small rural community has access to the pain self-management program. So we can send those patients to pain self-management. We also do opiate agonist therapy in our emergency department. So we can do inductions if somebody's struggling with a substance use disorder. So it's really knowing what's in your community. And most of us who work in smaller communities have a good handle on that. It can be a little bit more challenging in the bigger urban communities. But then again, there may be more resources. Now, COVID has kind of put a wrench in all of this, but it is important to have access or to have an understanding of what is available in your community. Patients who are frequent users of the emergency department are really high-risk patients. So we need to be able to facilitate care and resources uh, as quickly as possible. I also look at recent investigations. I don't go through CT scans that were done 20 years ago, but I look at things like CT scans, MRIs, labs, especially looking at their hemoglobin, their renal function, thyroid, and whether or not they've had any inflammatory markers. And I also get a list of the pharmacotherapy prior to seeing that patient and going in that room. So you have a really good handle on what has been done uh, so that your time is spent really listening to what is going on with this patient. And it is super important to approach this patient almost as a clean slate. So I try and keep my brain very open. I try not to pull in any kind of uh, previous uh, diagnosis or previous assumptions in terms of what, what is contributing to the patient's pain. And a great example is arthritis. So this is where we can get into some thinking biases, right? So arthritis is, is a, especially degenerative disease or osteoarthritis is part of our aging process. So generally it's not responsible for our total body pain. Otherwise we would all have uh, total body pain. So then you're thinking about your differential and it is huge with this particular type of presentation. It's a very, very broad, but often what you want to do is look at that low hanging fruit. So some of the most common causes of total body pain are often related to pharmacotherapy, and we'll talk briefly about that. There can be some inflammatory or infectious processes that are contributing to that. So patients that are coming in with COVID or coming in with influenza, those kinds of conditions can give us total body pain. We've all had an experience where we've had an infectious process, which gave us very unpleasant feelings throughout our skin, our joints, and a lot of soreness. Other mechanisms that can cause uh, this total body pain is the central mechanisms. So when I think of, uh, you know, when I think of central, obviously you're thinking of brain and spinal cord. 
And fibromyalgia would be one of those conditions, which is largely driven by central sensitization or that higher learning circuitry that we've talked about in previous podcasts. What can happen is that someone who's living with persistent pain, in particular central sensitization, they can have significant flare-ups during COVID because they don't have access to the supports and resources that they normally would use to keep their pain system calm and to keep that brain calm as well. This patient could be coming in with increasing flare-ups with her chest pain and discomfort. What I always often say to patients, especially if those investigations are not leaning me towards anything dangerous or bad, is that I tell the patient that the body will find ways to shut us down, especially if what we're doing is not being effective or not working well. So that chest pain is something that gets her attention, it gets my attention, but it may be the way that the body is trying to shut her down uh, to try and get her attention, especially if these flare-ups are getting more intense. Our body is a fascinating tool. I mean, we are ultimately programmed for survival. Pain is part of that survival mechanism that is hardwired into our nervous system, and our body needs to find ways to shut us down. So other types of differentials around that total body pain, as we mentioned, we talked briefly about drugs. I mean, the most common pharmacotherapy would be opiate analgesics. So is the patient using more of those opiate analgesics than they were previous to COVID, especially when we've limited their tools and now have they developed opiate-induced pain or diffuse body pain? There are some immunotherapies as well. So Jen is not getting any uh, chemotherapy for any type of cancer, but this would be something to consider in a patient who is receiving immunotherapies. Statins are also another uh, pharmacology that can give diffuse body pain muscles. So whether or not the patient is a candidate for a break from a statin or do you need to do a rotation to another, uh, another therapy that may not give that patient the same type of intensity of uh, muscle or body pain. Sometimes even just dropping the dose can make a big difference. So other types of inflammatory processes or infectious processes to think about would be things like Lyme disease. So if you're in a Lyme endemic area, you know, think about uh, is this process uh, or what the patient presenting with is Lyme disease. Um, there are endocrine processes, obviously thyroid, inflammatory things that we talked about, polymyalgia rheumatica, there can be vasculitis. Now with Jen, all of her markers have actually been very low. She's also a very low risk patient at her age. She's only young. She's 32 years old. So generally she doesn't fall in that category of where we would see PMR. Vasculitis is possible, but if her markers are low, then that risk would be also very low. There can be things about work as well. So if she's working shift work, nighttimes, uh, most of us that work night shifts know that when we wake up in the morning, it can be quite hard and we can feel quite uh, sore throughout our body. That inactivity that is associated with COVID, meaning that we're not getting out, we don't have our normal routine, that also can lead to more deconditioning for some patients. And so when they start moving that tissue again, sometimes that can also bring on a flare-up. Vitamin D deficiency, these are things that we often, we're not really kind of bringing all these things in when we're thinking about uh, in the emergency department, typically I'm thinking of those just those low-hanging fruit, but just know that there is a huge differential out there. Um, so it's important to be listening to the patient. So thinking about those causes is really important, having an approach before I go in. And believe it or not, I can do all of that. I can reach through the patient's chart very quickly and review that chart within, I'd say, three to five minutes. And I think most of us that are efficient at doing that have done that for a long time, can get very good at that. I don't need to know every detail, but I need to have a sense of what, you know, what has been done for that patient prior to going in to see them. 
So when I get into the bedside, I, I, I try very hard to be very open, be very curious, and be very non-judgmental. And I need to listen to that patient. So that's the first thing I do is to sit down in the chair and listen to the patient's pain story. So you want to hear what they're telling you, and you want to be to let the patient know that you're listening, that you're taking this very seriously. And a really good rule of thumb is let the patient talk for the first 45 seconds. And I know that doesn't seem like much, but it's incredible to see, and sometimes it's a really good test to see how quickly we can uh, interrupt a patient. So giving that patient the first 45 seconds to tell their story is really important and to be actively listening to that story. The next thing you want to do is to acknowledge suffering. So you can't know how much that patient, that patient can try and explain to you how much or what kind of impact that this has had on their life. But we need to acknowledge suffering. So listen to that pain story, acknowledge suffering. And then what you want to do is you want to examine the patient very carefully for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. It doesn't necessarily mean I need to do more testing. So this is a really important thing because I do find that sometimes we get caught up in an emergency department in particular is that we want to do more testing. But really, the testing isn't really what the patient needs at that point, unless you feel that there's something new going on or there's a progression of a pre-existing disease. Why you're doing that exam, why you're listening, is because you want to decide what type of pain does the patient have today. We know this patient has chronic pain, right? So that that's in her story. So that is like saying, we know the patient has diabetes. That is one of her conditions. And I, I put chronic pain in its own category. Remember talking about the World Health Organization, how chronic pain has been recognized as a unique condition that requires a unique approach. So chronic pain is a known diagnosis of hers. If she had diabetes, that would be a known diagnosis of her. But what I want to do today is to make sure, is there anything new going on in this patient? And I don't necessarily need to do a lot more testing. So is this chronic, is this acute pain? That means new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. Is this a chronic pain flare-up? So chronic pain flare-up often gets confused with acute pain. And once I've established if this is acute or chronic pain, this helps me roll out what my goals of care are. If this is acute pain, what I'm trying to do is to get, you know, a 78% reduction in that pain. I want to be able to identify what could be driving it because acute pain is part of that alarm system that is telling us when something is not okay. But my goals of care are going to change whether or not this is acute or chronic. My goals of care when I'm treating chronic pain especially if I'm using pharmacotherapy, it's just a 30% reduction. So it's very limited. So I need to help the patient understand that the pharmacotherapy is very limited, that we need to be looking at other strategies that might be able to help. So establishing if this is acute or chronic helps you to look at the goals of care. Uh, sometimes what uh, the question I'll ask the patient is that, I know this pain is very severe for you today, but is there anything new uh, about this pain or is that the intensity is just much greater today? And patients will often tell you that, no, this is my normal kind of pain, but the intensity is unbearable. So that helps you to understand this could be a flare-up related to their pain. So let's just remind ourselves uh, the definition of acute pain and uh, chronic pain as well as chronic pain flare-up. So acute pain is the normal predicted physiological response to an adverse chemical, thermal, or mechanical stimulus. So this is more about tissue damage or potential damage. 
So this is where the nociceptive circuitry is really important. So these are the sensory nociceptors. We have billions of them all throughout our body, both uh, peripherally and centrally. So remember that pain is triggered by an injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger. That pain reaches a peak and it should go away within uh, three months. If we look at chronic persistent pain or chronic pain, it is pain without biological value that has persisted beyond the normal tissue healing. So it lacks the acute warning function of physiological nociception. But to the patient, it can feel as intense as acute pain. And patients with persistent pain are never at zero, right? So their pain is triggered by an injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger. Pain intensity reaches a peak, but that pain never comes back to normal. So chronic pain is more about the central nervous system or more about that higher learning circuitry. So it's a lot more complicated. It doesn't make it less intense. When we're talking about chronic pain flare-ups, however, these are often confused with acute pain because these are really intense. If you think about it, the patient is never coming back to zero. So when they're getting these flare-ups, they're going from a, their zero may be a 5 on 10 intensity. So it can increase up to that 15 on 10. So they can come in with severe, severe pain. And it's very difficult to sort through this because you don't want to minimize it, but you also want to be able to give that patient some relief. So this is often confused with acute pain, but generally acute pain, chronic pain flare-ups are not caused by a new condition or progression of a pre-existing condition. And in fact, if you do do investigations, you're not really finding anything new in that patient. So if that's acute, like we said, you want to sort it out, address the threat, um, decide if this is a surgical problem or a non-surgical problem, and help that patient find and use tools that can help them manage their pain and suffering. So um, the big thing, though, is really looking at those goals of care, which is what we talked about. And we did talk about the fact that when we look at what's realistic. So the other thing that's important about acute pain and looking at how we frame acute pain, if we think about the normal physiological response to a threat or a perceived threat is our body is hardwired for survival. So acute pain is one of those experiences that is essential for survival. So in many ways, we have to frame acute pain in a very healthy context. So our body needs the pain to protect the tissue. It's really important that we look at acute pain in a way that tells the patient it's not going to be there forever. It's how our body protects that tissue. So what's important is how we help the patient keep moving, keep functioning, so that they're not, their body is not shut down. Because the less functional they are, the less they're moving, the worse this will get. So your general approach to acute pain, as I mentioned, is those talking points. So dress those fears and uncertainty with the patient. Let them know that you've got your back. Try and keep them uh, in the loop when you're discussing ways of managing this. Reassure them that they'll be okay, that their body can heal this, especially if you're looking at something new like a fracture. So what kind of intervention? So those talking points are first. These, these, this is the structure that I often use, starting with their talking points. What interventions can you use? You know, what alternative therapies can you use? What is the pharmacotherapy? And then the risk stratification and managing that risk for the patient. So let's look at the talking points first. You want to address the fears and uncertainty. Um, when we look at the biggest risk for chronic pain, it is that worst case scenario thinking, that fear and uncertainty making that patient feel safe, let them know that you've got their back. Um, so interventional things you can use, is there an intervention for splinting? You know, can you brace a compression fracture, especially in the back? So I see this a lot in the elderly patients. But looking interventions are things like blocks. There are things like splinting. 
There are things like if you've got a surgical problem, get a surgeon to see the patient. I'm just kidding. That, but that's the kind of thing when I think of interventions. What are some of the alternative therapies? What our brain is looking for, it's looking for calm and stillness. How can we help that patient find calm and stillness? So finding out what interests them, everybody's going to be different, right? So not everybody is going to think about, you know, breathing as being an effective tool. And it's very hard when someone's in a crisis to start looking at breathing. But it's important to help them understand that their brain is just looking for stillness and it's looking for calm. So helping them understand the cause of that acute pain, finding ways to manage that. So the breathing is important, slowing that breathing down. When we look at pharmacotherapy, so pharmacotherapy can be something as simple as a regular dose of acetaminophen. It can be a regular dose of an NSAID. Um, it can be something, depending on the type of pain, so this is where it becomes important. If I feel that that acute pain is more nociceptive driven versus neuropathic driven, then that also will help me decide what type of pharmacotherapy that I want to use. If I decide and if I make a clinical decision with a patient to use an opiate analgesic for their pain, then I need to be able to risk stratify that patient and then manage the risk with them. So when you're looking at managing acute pain, um, you want to look at the, the um, opiate analgesic in a very short period of time. So on average, probably three days, and you want to limit the quantity of pills that you're using. So usually uh, 10 tablets would be what I would use through the emergency room. So what you want to do is you want to, if that risk is, is very real for that patient, so Jen is 32, she is in that risk factor, but she's never had a previous history of opiate uh, or any kind of addiction. But in Jen, I would probably use a, an opiate analgesic like morphine uh, at 2.5 milligrams and tell her that the goal of that medication is not to take her pain away. The goal is to help her move better, and the goal is to help her uh, sleep a little bit better, but that the medication itself is very limited. Uh, so we would limit that script to uh, two or three days. So yeah, so if we look at the pharmacotherapy, uh, that nociceptive versus neuropathic uh, mechanism, so with nociceptive, you can look at, and I tend to add in a regular dose of acetaminophen uh, if I'm going to use an opiate analgesic. So I put them on some 500 milligram, two tablets, four times a day, and then add in the morphine as a PRN, a short-acting morphine. You can also look at topicals. So if you're looking at somebody with shingles, for example, sometimes topicals can be very effective. Uh, in that neuropathic, so if they did have an acute onset of shingles, I'm looking primarily at neuropathic. So I'd probably bring in something like pregabalin or even a low dose of amitriptyline or nortriptyline at nighttime. So looking at that nociceptive versus neuropathic piece can be helpful when you're trying to decide what kind of pharmacotherapy you're going to use. If we're looking at, uh, so if I look at acute pain versus chronic pain, we know that the, the goals of care with pharmacotherapy and chronic pain are really limited. So if you get that 30% reduction, and there's a great uh, tool that you can find online called a pain calculator. It comes from the University of Alberta group, um, and it's really helpful. So if I take something like uh, amitriptyline, uh, which has probably been studied the most in terms of the uh, tricyclics uh, and also using for chronic pain, what it does, it allows the patient to say, okay, and you and the patient to work together to say, okay, if I go on this medication, if I take amitriptyline, what is my benefit? Most patients assume they're going to get 100% benefit when in fact that is not the reality. So with that pain calculator, using those patients' demographics, you can help make a really informed decision with that patient. 
So we know from the studies that for every 100 patients we treat with uh, amitriptyline, 25 show some improvement, and that improvement is just a 30% reduction. 25 show the same kind of improvement with placebo or no treatment, and 50 actually have no improvement. So 25% of people do get some benefit, but that is very, very low. So it's important for the patient to understand the limitations. And you can do this with all the pharmacology. It is kind of cool, actually. So chronic pain flare-ups, though, are, are really challenging. And this is really about, uh, at this stage, it's really about how we're communicating with the patient, validating and reassuring them that there's nothing dangerous or bad happening in their tissue. So these chronic pain flare-ups can be very intense. And in fact, if they're, they're really happening a lot, then it gets to a point where the patient, even small maneuvers, can give that patient significant pain. So it's important to acknowledge that this is really difficult for this patient, allowing them to express that frustration. And like I said, it's important besides that severity is to make sure uh, that you're sort of pulling this out of the patient to see if there's anything else that they're worried about and help go through them with that recent testing and investigations that they had and also suggesting some tools and strategies. So the important thing is that you know, where I come back to sort of that simplistic piece is I'll, I'll, I keep saying to the patient is that what our brain is looking for is stillness, and our but our bodies still need movement. So that patient may be trying to move, you know, 30 minutes twice a day or, or an hour twice a day and may not be realizing with their chronic pain that they're actually in all the other stresses is they're now starting to get significant flare-ups of their pain. So sometimes getting that patient to back off a little bit from that. We want them walking, but maybe cut that time in half. So if they're doing it an hour once a day, maybe they would consider 30 minutes twice a day if they can't give up that hour, or even just cutting it down to 30 minutes uh, a day, whether it's 15 in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, or if they're able to do it all together. Sometimes that can help to minimize the flare-ups that they're having. So uh, trying to work with that patient. So once we've listened to their pain story, we've acknowledged that suffering and we've examined them very carefully. We want to maximize non-opioid and non-cannabinoid therapy. So we did talk about that. And if we decide to use that opiate analgesic, we want to risk stratify for harm if opiates or cannabinoids are used to manage their pain. And we manage that risk by mapping out an approach to the opiates and the cannabinoids. So what is mapping? We talked about this previously. Is Mapping is really about monitoring the patient's use for aberrancy so that you need to be looking at those urine drug testing you need to be looking at your prescription monitoring and you need to be screening that patient. So urine drug testing uh, or urine drug monitoring um, can be very helpful, but it should never be used to catch the patient. It always is. It, I always think of it like if I was prescribing the patient Coumadin, I need to do an INR to sort of see where we are. That's the way I think of urine drug monitoring. So, um, but also be aware of how limited, especially the point of care testing is. And if you have any concerns, make sure you send that urine for mass spectrometry. And we did talk about that in previous podcasts. So if you are seeing aberrancy, make sure you adjust the opioid immediately. So if you're having a patient in COVID and you're finding that they are running through their scripts really uh, very quickly because they have no other way of coping, what you need to do is to limit the quantity of pills that they're actually having access so they don't run out early. Uh, and it's important, like I said, just to make sure this is not opiate-induced pain because they're upping their dosing. So trying to add in other adjuncts is really important so they're not overusing their opiate analgesic. Uh, and we want to prescribe using principles of harm reduction to keep the patient and the community safe. So what that means is just reducing the amount 
of access they have to the uh, opiate analgesic. Uh, so rather than give them a month script, uh, give them, you know, a, a week at a time or, you know, just try and negotiate. Every patient is going to be different. You're going to know that patient in the emergency department. It's different. It's different. I don't have a really good handle on how the patient is doing, but I know that I'm going to come at this with safety and concern for them. Overall, if we just kind of review that, is that your approach to chronic pain is to listen to the patient's pain story, acknowledge suffering, examine them carefully for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease, maximize non-opioid and non-cannabinoid therapies, risk stratify for harm if opiates or cannabinoids are used to manage pain, and manage the risk by mapping out an approach to opiates and cannabinoids. Mapping includes monitoring patient's use for aberrancy, adjust immediately if an aberrancy is patient, and prescribe using principles of harm reduction to keep that patient in the community safe. So hopefully you found that helpful. It's a lot of information. It is helpful to have that in approach because these particular situations are not only overwhelming for the patient, they're also overwhelming for us. And we want that interaction to be positive. We want that patient to know that we do care. We may not be able to fix this, but we want them to know that we're listening and that we're coming at this with some care. So we're going to end it here and pick it up next week where I want to explore chronic widespread pain and multiple unexplained symptoms. So prior to us doing that next week, I just want to give your attention to a really interesting paper written by Dr. Kevin Fleming and Mark Volchek. So it is an open access, so it's very easy to get access to it. And the title of that paper is A Central Sensitization and the Initial Evaluation of a Patient with Fibromyalgia, a Review. And this is clinical psychology and medicine. But I think it's a really interesting paper for you to look at prior to us getting together next week. So we'll end there and see you hopefully back next week. And we'll continue looking at that central sensitization and multiple unexplained symptoms. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.